This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Molina, and I am flying solo today. That's right. Liel and Stephanie have left me with the keys to the plane. That's how planes work, right? Keys? Anyway, today I bring you the second of four special episodes dedicated to the month of Elul. On this one, we'll be talking about music. Now, when it comes to music, generally, I personally find it so powerful, so capable of evoking strong emotion in me that I sometimes avoid it. Don't get me wrong, I love music, but I am easily overwhelmed. I'm the kind of guy who tears up at the overture of a musical. So depending on my mood, if I'm in a fragile state, for instance, I have to be very careful about curating my playlists. As a subset of music, Jewish tunes have an even higher likelihood of hitting me in the kishkas. Hearing Hatikva or Anima Amin, knowing that it was sung by many of my fellow Jews as they marched to their demise, these pieces of music knock me out. And that goes for liturgical pieces, too. If the text of Unatana Tokef doesn't scare you, the tune should do the trick. It does for me, anyway. And so for the next hour or so, I hope you'll join us as we focus first, very specifically, on the music of the High Holidays, and then gradually, we'll widen our lens to include the other musical traditions that make our songs so robust. To that end, this week we'll hear from Rabbi Josh Warshawski about the songs of the holiday. We will revisit singer Sarah Aroesti's Ladino-filled trip to North Macedonia, and we'll finish up with a dive into the music collection of the National Library of Israel. So, away we go, join me now, and enjoy. Rabbi Josh Warshawski is a musician, composer, and song leader and friend of the pod who is most qualified to help us better unpack the music of the holidays. He walks us through what to expect, he plays some of his favorite melodies, and shares one of his new takes on a classic. A lot of it is about preparing. So the more that we can think about what we hope to get out of the experience, the more we're actually going to be able to get that intention when we actually arrive in the room, right? That's why we have this whole period the month before, starting at Rosh Chodesh Elul, which is the month before Rosh Hashanah starts, where we're beginning to think about these prayers. We start using some of the prayers already. We start using some of the melodies so that we can get it in our ears and in our hearts and in our souls so that by the time we get into the room, we're already aware of what we want to be doing and what we want to accomplish. So I think the music of the High Holidays is, is a journey. It takes us all the way from the beginning of the journey to the end of the journey. The beginning being um, the first moment of Rosh Hashanah, where we enter into this space, the very beginning of the year, and we call each other to pray with the Baruch Hu. But before we do that, we open ourselves up with this joyous communal melody that almost everyone, every synagogue I've ever been to for the high holidays begins with a nigun, right? It starts wordless so that everybody can enter into that. And it's intentionally in major. It's it's happy and joyful and it sets us up, you know, with our hopes and dreams for success. And that melody flows through the entire evening service there. And then you get into the morning where you, again, begin sort of in this this major mode. And you move into, as you get further into the morning, prayers that, you know, it sort of hone in on the centrality and the seriousness of the day, beginning with the opening of Shacharit, the central morning service that starts with the word Hamelech. God is ruler, is king. On any other Shabbat or holiday, we don't begin there. Uh, on Shabbat, we begin with Shochenad, which is a few lines later. But we we begin this service earlier with this kingship moment because this is the moment where we say, like, God is physically sitting on some sort of throne and judging us. So there's this moment of... Uh, and you can hear there like more seriousness than where we were before in that sort of joyfulness there's this sort of anticipation of stepping into this throne room 
And you go from there into these moments of, you know, we, we sang out the little piece of the melody for the Amida, which is also back of that major. Um, so we're flowing between feeling close and feeling like God as, as parent, as someone who cares for us, and feeling far away and nervous, like God who is ruler. And we have to sort of hold on to both of those relationships. And, and the music vacillates between that to give us that emotion. And then it sort of does that all the way through Yom Kippur also, right? Where we have that moment of kol nidre, or we're sort of this anticipation and intrepidation. But then this moment where we ask for forgiveness, we have that ashamnu melody that's back in the major. Ashamnu bagadnu gazalnu dibarnu dofi. And if you look at the at the English, right, those words are, you know, we're, we have a lot of sins that we've really messed up, but we're seeing it like we're so happy about them. But the idea is that we're, we're joyful because we're hoping that that we actually won't do those things again and that we can actually separate and distance ourselves, the people we are, from the things we might have done over the past year. So the music actually takes us to those moments, sometimes even more so than the words themselves. We start out happy, we get sad, we get happy, we get sad. But then at some point, it's just like arcing all the way up, right? By the time you get to Neila, if you're at a synagogue that's like really thinking intentionally about what's happening, you're 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 going out for the climax, right? The gates are closing, but there's this there's still time for us to like celebrate and sing. That service is something that um, in most congregations everybody stands for the whole service, and we're standing, we're jumping at the synagogue that I lead services at in in Los Angeles. We have everybody outside under a huge tent, and it's a party, right? We're celebrating and we're singing and we're getting as close as we can to this moment where our hopefully our prayers will be answered. And then we continue that energy all the way up through Sukkot and Simchat Torah, that moment of celebrating, starting the Torah again anew. The services in general for themselves are structured in the same way as weekdays, as Shabbat, as holidays, just with a lot of additional sections. So if you're walking into a Rosh Hashanah service, first you're gonna experience this sort of flow of the melody. There's a, there's a lot more moments in the service where the Shaliach Tzibor or the cantor, the person who's leading the service, is giving more flourishes and making it a little more beautiful to elevate the sense of awe during the day. And at the same time, there's also a whole bunch more pieces that are really collective and really participatory. Some of the moments that I think most define what might happen on a particular Rosh Hashanah service, right? The, the moments where you could tell that something different is happening. For example, the Amidah, right? The Amidah is a prayer that Jews say three times a day. Um, it's familiar to so many Jews. But if you heard it on the high holidays, you would hear it in a very different way than you would hear on a normal day, right? On a weekday, you might hear, Baruch sort of this, let's move through it. We're in the middle of a weekday kind of thing. On Shabbat, you'd hear Baruch It's a little bit more mellow, a little bit more together, a little bit more joyful because it's Shabbat. Um, on the high holidays, you would take that and you'd elevate it like 10 steps. So it would go like... <clears throat> So that same line that we did in five seconds on a weekday could take you minutes on the high holidays. And people, if they've been sitting there, you know, year after year after year, will hum along or sing along with each of those pieces as the leader takes us through it. So that might be a moment where you'd notice that there is something different, even though the words might be familiar to you. For the most part, the words are, are the same. There's a lot of different additions in the moment. So on the high holidays, we're in this period of awe. So we add a lot of extra prayers and lines into each of our tefillot, into the prayers that, that make it feel like we're asking for forgiveness, that make it feel like we're centering on the seriousness of the day, make us feel like we want to be remembered in this book of life. So in the beginning of the Amidah, there are these iconic additions that have been sung in the same melody for sort of hundreds of years, and new melodies have been written, but these are the ones that that if you went into most congregations, you would hear. So like, <clears throat> Asking for remembrance, asking you hear that word chayim over and over again, asking for life for one more year. And we say that every single day as we move through that 10-day period, beginning on Rosh Hashanah and ending on Yom Kippur. 
So there's a lot of different points in the in the service, and it's a it's a marathon and not necessarily a sprint. So this is something where we're trying to find a way to find iconic moments. But because it's so long, not every moment can be meaningful all of the time. You know, for different people, there are different moments that feel beautiful, powerful, iconic. You know, there's those moments that are super iconic, right? The Avinu Malkenu. If you went to your synagogue on Yom Kippur and you didn't hear Avinu Malkenu, Choneinu Vaneinu, it's like, why'd you even show up that day? It's like, were you, are you even fasting? <laughs> it, it, you know, there's these melodies that we anticipate and then when we hear these melodies over and over, it sort of lifts us up in those ways. So those melodies kind of bracket different parts of the service. So Avinu Malkinu comes at the end of the morning service, right before the Torah reading. So we say this prayer about our, our, our parent, our, our ruler, asking to be close. And then we read from the Torah, this book that we received from that parent or ruler and that orients us to the seriousness of the day. The moments and beginnings and ends are always really iconic moments, right? At the beginning of Yom Kippur, we start the entire experience with Kol Nidre, which is this, you know, this prayer that's so iconic. We've been using that melody for hundreds and hundreds of years. Kol Nidre So we start with this melody that sort of absolves us of the sins that we've had in the past or in the future, depending on who we're t- whose interpretation we're talking about. And, uh, and we enter into the day knowing that we have this opportunity to, to start again. But that melody sort of releases us and it, it opens us up. It also fills us a little bit with dread. That's what that melody is supposed to sort of bring us into, that there's this kind of, our life is hanging on the balance there. You know, when I, I lead services in communities all around the country. And I try and sort of find a balance between what melodies feel new and unfamiliar and maybe a little bit uncomfortable and what melodies feel like they're home melodies for the communities that I'm entering. And so, you know, I hope that when you, wherever you happen to pray for the high holidays or really any time that you're encountering melodies that feel like they're like sitting in your kishkas, they're like the melodies that have been stuck with you since birth or since the first time you encounter them. And they're the moments that lift you up and hold you in the spirit of the day. And at the same time that you're also encountering these beautiful, 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 and amazing new melodies that are being written both in Israel and in America for a lot of these iconic texts. This is one of my my favorite iconic high holiday pieces. For me, this is one of those pieces that if I don't hear it over the course of the day on Yom Kippur, it's like I, I, it's like I hadn't even showed up that morning. It comes at the end of every service on Yom Kippur, and it's uh, this this paragraph of all these different comparisons between God and the people of Israel. Anu amecha elohenu, we're your people and you are our God. Anu vanecha avinu, we're your children, you are our parent. We're our flock, you're our shepherd, etc., etc. And the melody is just like, it's like a it's a banger, I think. It's just like sort of, and I've, I, every place that I've ever gone, we've sung it this way um, ever since I was a kid also. I think it's I think it's the most common melody, although, you know, I've only been to so many places. So this is how it sounds. New melodies sometimes are really scary because, you know, they take us out of our intention from when we heard the words. And also, if, if you know the words in a particular melody, it's hard to sort of shift that and retranslate it into what a new melody could do. Yeah, you know, I, I think that there's both 
power in new melodies. And also it's a, it's, it's a, it's jarring. Um, but even in the Sidur, it says over and over again, like um, one of my favorite lines is, Uv tamid. in goodness, God renews the world every single day, that there are new things for us to experience, new things for us to notice. So it's powerful to, to hear and experience words in a new way. And at the same time, if you're not yet comfortable with with how you're saying the words and, and the melody holds you, don't change, right? I, I, I don't want there to be new melodies all the time. Um, but if there weren't any new melodies, then I'd kind of kind of be out of a profession. Because <laughs> that's what I do is, is create new melodies. And but the idea of of new composition for me is how can I try and create a melody that's going to better express what the words are already trying to say. I have a, a new melody for one of the prayers of the holiday liturgy. It's uh, it's the Hinani prayer, which is the prayer that the Shaler Tibor, the prayer leader, says right before they lead the Musaf Amidah, sort of the, the biggest iconic moment of the service, the central Amidah of the whole day. And it's a prayer of like real deep honesty and soul bearing about the leader saying that they're not really worthy of this task and that they are filled with sin. And at the same time, even though they're not worthy, they're going to sort of step up to the proverbial plate and do this anyway and say, you know, I, I might not be perfect and I've made some mistakes, but the community has chosen me to represent them and I'm going to try my best. And I hope that my prayer is received as if it was given by someone who is fully innocent and righteous, someone with a beautiful voice, someone who is connected to all of the creations, and someone who deserves to be listened to, uh, even if I don't feel that way myself. So I tried to create a melody that sort of felt like it held on to some of the musical themes of the melody that I grew up with, and at the same time, came from a place of humility, a place of sort of understanding of the gravity of what's about to happen. And then I, I actually, I, I added in a couple different names for God of what I would want to call out to God in that particular moment. Adon HaMechila, Master of Forgiveness. Bochen Levavot, a heart searcher. Shomei God who hears our prayers. Gole Amukot, Revealer of Deep Secrets. These names all come from different places in the Hayali Liturgy, but sort of aren't present in this particular prayer. But something that I thought I'd want to call out to God if I were the one who were leading in this particular moment. Um, so it sounds like this. Hineni Animimas Mirash Show me a tefillah, 
כי אתה שומע תפילה ורוצה בתשובה ברוך אתה שומע תפילה excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Sarah Aroesti is a Sephardic singer who writes and performs songs in Ladino, that's the Judeo-Spanish dialect. We were so moved by her musical tribute to the lost Sephardic community of the town of Manastir in North Macedonia that we wanted to re-air part of that interview from 2021. and it's so nice to be here. I am a Ladino singer and a songwriter, and I'd like to think of myself as an educator activist to share the gospel that Ladino rocks. It really is such a special part of Jewish culture, and you know, for such a long time, people really didn't know anything about it. They still don't. It is a language that binds together Sephardic Jews who left Spain in 1492 and dispersed primarily along the Mediterranean basin and North Africa. And that language is at its core Castilian Spanish, but it is combined with bits and pieces of French, Italian, Portuguese, Greek, Turkish, Arabic, and Hebrew. By nature, by being this language that binds us, it also is a culture that has defined Sephardic Jewry in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Ottoman Empire for the last 500 plus years. My grandfather was born in the Ottoman Empire in what is today North Macedonia. But at the time, it was a town called Monastir, today known as Bitola. But Monastir was a very, very well-known city for its Sephardic population, akin to its larger, more well-known neighbor, Salonika. Ladino was the spoken language at home. It wasn't passed down to me, which is why I always felt like I was missing out on something. It's a very typical immigrant story. My grandfather, his family, they were escaping war. They were escaping in 1912, 1913 from the Balkans when the Ottoman Empire collapsed. And they came to America and they wanted to become American. They wanted to assimilate quickly into their new culture. So. Sadly, the language was not passed on and certain customs were not passed on, but I still grew up in a very, very proud Sephardic family. As I got older, I learned about Ladino and I, at age 13, I knew that I was gonna be a singer. I demanded that my first performance of Ladino music would be singing the Ladino Ein Kelohenu at my bat mitzvah. 
Ain kalo heinu, ain kadoneinu, ain kimokeinu, ain kimoshiein. That was like my first Ladino performance, and it really meant something to me, actually, to sing a song in Ladino for my bar mitzvah. Non como vuestro dio is how we say it. Non como vuestro dio, non como vuestro señor, non como vuestro rey, non como vuestro salvador. Now it's become popular in a lot of synagogues. I trained very seriously in Western classical music, and I would be singing all the time in my room, in the kitchen, in the car, on the playground. My mom would always be telling me to shut up because I was singing so much. No, just no. I went to Yale and I studied at the Yale School of Music. And at Yale, I spent a summer in Israel. And it just so happened that my opera coach was the great late Nico Castell, one of the most famous Ladino singers. In between our opera coachings, he started teaching me the very classical Ladino repertoire. This was like completely revelatory for me. I clearly was singing the music in a different way that, you know, touched me and touched the audience because I connected to it more than, you know, no offense, Mozart, but it was so obvious that I cared about the Ladino music more. And it took a couple of years, but eventually I made the switch full time. I was very vocal talking about my family history. I I really, really wanted to explore my history of monastir in what is today Macedonia. I decided to create an album as an homage to the Jewish community that had lived there prior to to World War II. I wanted to do it jointly with Macedonians and Israelis. So half of the songs are in Macedonian, half of the songs are in Ladino, and even the songs that are in Macedonian, they reference the Jewish community that once lived there, which I just think is fascinating that we have records of these songs. For example, a well-known one is called Ennovreme Sibev Ergen, and it's literally about a bachelor who is strolling the streets of Bitsula, and he is clearly not Jewish. He is a Christian, and he finds himself, he winds up in a Jewish neighborhood and finds a lovely Jewish girl. And this song is all in Macedonian. And in the song, he goes up to the Jewish girl and asks her, tries, he tries to convince her to become uh, a Slovak. I just think as a historical record that in song, we have this story of the cultures that are living next to each other and, and how they navigated that, I just think is fascinating. I wrote two songs on this album. One is called Mi Monastir, which is very personal. It's about the memories that were shared with me from my grandfather. And truly the the main inspiration in my life for this project is my cousin, Rochelle Nachmias, who is 104 years old. And she is one of the 2% who survived. So much of what I do is for her and for the memory of her family. And I am so blessed to have her many stories. She shared with me some very specific memories. For example, her family, when they were taken away on March 11th, 1943, her neighbors knew that the mezuzah was such an important item and symbol for Jewish families that her neighbor took the mezuzah off the door to save in the hopes that maybe one day she would see the family again and be able to return it. 
Of course, the whole family was killed, but when Rochelle returned, the neighbor found her and gave her back the mezuzah. I have held that mezuzah in my hands and I've seen it and it is just, you know, you, you can't not be affected when, you, when you're holding that. And so this song has a lot of the symbolism from, from my family. So this project, it really just shows that collaboration and, and dialogue across these borders can really create something beautiful and new that it's a tragic, tragic story of what happened. And yet we are still singing these songs and we are still working together and creating you know, beauty and joy through music and through these new friendships. Any proceeds from concerts and and you know, what comes of this project, we want to then put back into some of the projects happening on the ground that are initiated by the citizens of Bitola. For example, to restore the cemetery, to create more exhibits and museums about Jewish culture in Macedonia. So it's all to help enrich the preservation efforts that are happening there. more music from Sarah Aroesti, check out saraharoesti.com. Hey, J.Crew. Ever wondered what the Rambam's handwriting actually looked like? Or what about the theological ruminations running through Sir Isaac Newton's head when that apple fell down on it? Did you know that in addition to building the walls of Jerusalem, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent also wrote love poems? These and dozens of other amazing treasures are now available to view in 101 Treasures from the National Library of Israel, a stunning fine art volume richly illustrated with high-quality photographs of manuscripts, books, maps, posters, music, and more accompanied by stories about these significant works and the intriguing people behind them from one of my favorite places in the world, the National Library of Israel. The book, again, is 101 Treasures from the National Library of Israel, now available on Amazon. And also, on October 22nd, the National Library of Israel opens its new building, a stunning architectural feat where these and many other objects of our heritage and culture will be on display for you to experience firsthand. So make sure to include Jerusalem's newest destination in your travel plans. The National Library of Israel, your story, our story, and one of my favorite places in the world. Hi, it's Abby Pogrebin, back with another episode of The Minion, a roundtable discussion on tablet about the state of the American Jewish community. No experts, just people. This time, I talked with 11 Balei Tshuva, secular or non-Orthodox Jews who chose to become Orthodox. Here's some of what they had to say. I love telling people that I'm about Tshuva. It's an interesting term because it means like you're a person that is returning to who you were. It's not like I'm returning to being observant because I was observant as a child. That's not the case, but I'm returning to my essence of who I am. You know, when I began the journey, I decided that I can't have one leg in the world I left behind and one leg in the new world I'm entering now. I fully immerse myself in this Orthodox world, unknown to me, and I was taking everything on myself, uh, keeping the halacha, everything as best as I can. And and then I learned, you know, that to find that healthy balance, and it's, st- it's still a journey for me, it's still an ongoing journey. I left behind friends and family gatherings and celebrations because I couldn't commute on Shabbos, but I gained 
a life of purpose, stability, and meaning, meaningful lifestyle. One of the gifts of being a Balchuva and learning Torah is finding out that things are much deeper than they seem. And so what I would want all Jews to know is that if something bothers you, look deeper. Look deeper at the primary sources. And eventually you will find something that resonates because it's for all of us. People find it threatening as parents, siblings, you're going into a very different kind of a lifestyle. They can anticipate that there's going to be times when you're just not going to all be able to get together in the same way, in the same place, at the same time. Parents in particular can consider it a rejection of their own values. And one of the things that we were taught when we were early in on this was to help heal to the best we could these relationships that it was our responsibility as Bali Chuba to reassure our parents in particular that it was Dafka, the, the good values that they showed us, that they taught us, that led us on this path. It's not just on them to accept us. We have to make an effort to. I would like everyone to know that it's something that uh, about Shuva chose to do and keeps on choosing every single day. It's really ongoing, something that we, we choose to do every single day, connecting ourselves to our neshama, our soul, to our maker. Check out the latest Minion at tabletmag.com slash Minion. We're bringing you the latest installment of our series, The Archive, wherein we explore the National Library of Israel's collection. And this week, we're moving past books into, yes, you guessed it, the music and sound archive of the library. We have uh, this, um, what we call in Hebrew, Hanaleid Balbela. It's a Hasidic tune. It's a Ladino song. It's a Greek tune. It's a Bulgarian tune. It's a jazz tune. You know, music moves. I'm Leah Leibowitz, and welcome back to the Archive, an exploration of the National Library of Israel. I will, again, be guiding you across history and the globe through this library's amazing collection. That wonderful voice you heard humming one of my favorite childhood tunes, Chanaleit Balbela, was Dr. Gila Flam. She's been with the National Library of Israel for over 30 years and heads the music department and sound archive. Up until now in the series, as Jews, people of the book, you know, the work we've heard about makes sense. It's about what's been written down maintaining Rambam's manuscripts or Gandhi's letters or even Sir Isaac Newton's scribbled Hebrew about the end of days. But as Jews, we've got a pretty important oral tradition as well. I mean, the Talmud is just a written version of Jewish oral law passed down for generations until some rabbis decided to preserve it, kind of like librarians do. Dr. Flam comes right out of this oral tradition. As an ethnomusicologist, 
she records lost dialects and maintains obscure musical manuscripts and helms the most important Jewish and Israeli music collection in the entire world. Or as she sees it, she and her department just try to help tell the story of music. And so I asked her, how does the library tell the particular story of Jewish and Israeli music? What you find here is a mosaic. Not complete, exactly like you find in uh, archaeological uh, diggings. You can imagine that has more to it or has less to it of voices of people who not always were aware to what they have, but when you listen to it and when you analyze it, you know that it holds a system of sounds that express beliefs, religion, personality, and emotions. I think we have wonderful recordings of Iraqi Jews from the 1950s, Yemenite Jews, which some recordings I really like. And in Ashkenazic music, we have few cantors and Yiddish folk singers that really still excite me. We have some beautiful recordings of Italian Jews that you can hear opera through uh, liturgical music. Which is also very exciting and uh, also, I would say, beautiful. In one little tune, or ten little tunes, of a person who came from a very small village in Kurdistan or in Morocco, or in Poland, or in Russia. It's a whole world which lies on a very long history. And unfortunately, because the history of the Jews is very spread and very disrupted by migration, by Shoah, by all other atrocities. It's like the ongoing Jewish history is in the music. Because you don't need the land, you don't need the place, you don't need a pencil, you don't need the paper, you don't need color, you need nothing to create music and to preserve music and to preserve tradition. So outside these diverse musical traditions, the thing about a lot of these Jewish tunes, like, say, Chana Leit Balbela that you heard at the beginning, is that they're found in so many different communities across the world. And so I asked Dr. Flam, how do you know which is the true, real, first version, the OG that all others are copying? You know, you can have all kinds of theories, who was first or who came later, but I had a teacher of Arabic music. He said, you learn by osmosis. You don't even know how it happens. And it's yours. You know, the one who sings it in Hebrew thinks it's a Hebrew folk song. And the one who sings it in Greek thinks it's a Greek folk song. And this is why when we do these interviews that people speak to us about their tunes, it's very interesting. It's a whole myth. I can ask you to sing something. They said, I learned it from my great-grandfather who gave it to my great-grandfather and gave it to my father. And definitely, it's the tune of our family. No other family sings this Mirot Shabbat like we do. from this little place in Czechoslovakia and it went from generation to generation orally. And then a scholar will come and say, wow, it's the same tune that they sing in, in, in Czechoslovakia. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because your story, the myth that attached to the music is meaningful. So this is the greatness in music. When you live in a culture, one of the few things that you can get subconsciously is music. Music belongs to everyone. 
So Dr. Flom's job, as she's described it up until now, is quite important. Take Jewish musical and liturgical traditions near and far flung and organize and preserve them as a sliver of history. But something changed for the music archive around the year 2000. An Israeli law passed mandating that they have to archive every single piece of music that is ever released in Israel. I sense that you're not satisfied with this arrangement. No, I'm, I'm not. Okay. I'm a citizen that obey law most, most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to obey the law. The thing is that this has changed the priority to popular music first and ethnographic and art music second. And with this, I'm very unhappy. And I think you should first create and curate the pearls and later the silver and the simple stones. And as in any area, but especially in the Judita area, there are so many songs that nobody would ever listen to. I don't say we don't have to keep them, but we don't really have to invest a lot of cataloging. If your son has a bar mitzvah, for example, and you want to make him a present, you can take him to a studio and have him record a song, right? If you keep it in the family, it's fine. But if you put it on the web or you put it on a platform of commercial music, then we have to keep it. I'm not saying it's not important. And maybe he he has a wonderful voice and he sang a beautiful song about his father and his mother and his sister and his brother. But I think from this material, we can have a sample. I'm not saying we shouldn't curate it at all because it's culture and it reflects the culture of today. But if we have a person who is like 90 years old and he had a special tradition, we have to make an effort. I have now a request of uh, Ethiopians that they have a language that is going to disappear, a gaze language that only the priests know, and they really want to preserve it. And they are begging me to come and record and come and record, and I don't have the means. I think this is more important than to archive 50 bar mitzvah boys who sang a song in a studio. Dr. Flom explained that while this new legal situation does irk her a little bit, the shift towards digital music has made archiving every last song somewhat easier. She told me about the technology's unseen benefits, like how remote communities all around the world now have simple tools like even just a cell phone for preserving their sounds, their culture, their stories. And yet, something still bugged me. Because with this huge glut of digital technology pervading every aspect of our life, like when everyone has access to everything, isn't the risk that all of these distinct traditions start to change and maybe even start to sound the same? It's changing, but it has already changed. Before the digital area, it also changed because of demographic, because of uh, geographics, because of all kinds of, because Jews are Navanadniks, you know, they, they go from here to there. In Israel, there was a strong influence, especially in the early years of Hebrew and of Hebrew folk song, we call invented tradition of the Israeli folk song into the synagogue. For many years already, you can go to a synagogue and every congregation sings Lecha Dodin, a different melody. One sings it on Yerushalayim Shazav, one sings it on... Uh... Hallelujah, Berlin. Come on. By Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen, but some sing uh, Shira Ma'alot with Hallelujah of Leonard Cohen, etc., etc. So the flexibility is in the tradition. And already now we talk about mainly three main traditions, Faradi, Yerushalmi, Ashkenazi, which is more Eastern Ashkenazi, all the Western Ashkenazi in Israel. 
disappeared. Maybe they are still where you live in Upper West Side, maybe some old Yekes communities that sing Frankfurt tradition. If you know, tell me. And uh, Yemenites, that they kept their own uh, tradition. So already the Italian music almost disappeared. Greek liturgical music almost disappeared. Moroccans here and there, there were different traditions of Moroccan, Algeria, Libya, etc. So many, many traditions that already disappeared. And therefore, we have the manuscripts of these traditions in our recordings. And music changes. There's nothing you can do. Music changes, and it's built in in music. If you go to a synagogue, you enter and tell me what you hear. And you can see that you have different sounds and you have different traditions. And it's not all the same. Yet. But who knows? Who knows? Maybe our grandchildren will listen to the same tefillah all over Israel and all over America and we'll have peace. I'm Leah Leibowitz, signing off from the National Library of Israel. Until next time. The Archive is created with the support of the National Library of Israel. To learn more about this and other items in the collection of the National Library of Israel, head over to nli.org slash il slash en. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Joshua Molina, with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibovitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Daron Rusquet, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana La Rosa. Get your unorthodox merch at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo and merch is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. Please, please send us emails at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Until next week, my friends, shalom.